Russian spies, a bunch of bunglers, or the cream of the crop? Exploiting the military, why far-right extremism likes a man in uniform? Why is no one joining the army? Recruitment problems in both Britain and America. And the First World War like you've never seen it before, from Oscar-winning director Peter Jackson. They're real people with all the nuances and subtleties of human beings. President Putin's political war is on a par with, if not more intense, than at the height of the Cold War. That's according to one commentator this week following the revelations from the British investigative website Bellingcat about the identity of the second suspect in the Salisbury Novichok poisoning. Bellingcat has claimed that both men had previously received Russia's highest honour from Vladimir Putin. So what will the Russian president be making of the findings, which are undisputed by UK officials? I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, formerly director General of the Royal United Services Institute, as well as Christopher Lee, our own defence analyst. And Michael Clark, what do you make of events this week? Um, it's another uh, sort of blow at uh, President Putin in a way, because it, it, it shows more and more what you know, some of us have believed for some time, which is that the GRU, the military intelligence arm of the, uh, of Rus- the Russian state, has been very cavalier. Um, I don't think they're incompetent, but they've been cavalier. They've taken Britain as a soft touch. So they've assumed that it doesn't really matter and if they get caught, so what? Uh, at least if they get discovered, so what? <clears throat> and the fact is it's all rebounding back on the Kremlin in a more severe way than I think the Russians uh, would have imagined. And it's, it is embarrassing as, as far as it goes. Um, and I think that what the British are trying to do is to set up a form of deterrence to say, you know, if you play fast and loose with us, there will be consequences and don't take it for granted. We'll see how the Russians react to that because we're not near the, we're not near the end game with all of this yet. It's got quite a way to run for a while yet. So, Christopher, how do you think the Russians will react to this? I think what they're doing at the moment is as expected, and that is that uh, within Mr Putin's office, he's actually doing something which he's never had to do before and, in fact, never has done before. And that is saying, I want this organisation, the GRU, the GU, uh, to rethink what it's doing how it's doing it and how it's reported. The GRU does not have to uh, report to Mr. Putin. It reports to the Defence Ministry and the Chief of the the Defence Staff. And somehow this whole thing has got out of hand. And excepting for one thing, they are sort of almost going along with Mr. Putin's idea, uh, and that is that they can do anything as long as that they don't embarrass uh, Mr. Putin or Mr. Putin's office. And I think that that's about to change. And what, and what uh, Professor Michael Clark, do you think the role of Bellingcat, this investigative website, is in all of this? Well, it, it shows what you can gain with um, open source intelligence. I mean, they're just very good. They, I mean, long before this blew up, Bellingcat had a good reputation for investigative um, uh, forensics, really, within in cyberspace. And it just shows that if you've got something to work on, just one detail to start with, you can find out a great deal. And what it shows is that GRU operatives had been fairly careless in the way that they'd used their material, the fact that they had sequential numbers on their passports, they were prepared to travel on the same aircraft, not even sort of disguising their movements, and that so much of their personal details linked back to the GRU headquarters as their home address for some for some years. So it just shows that if you can, if you've got the skill, you can get 
you can get into uh, all organizations just with open source intelligence. And that ought to be a, a good wake-up call, I think, to intelligence agencies all over the world. Yeah. There's another side of this, and that is that there were 48 tracts, as they are called, um, that were used by another agency called Fontanka. And this was discovered, the, the background and the whereabouts uh, of the doctor involved, Alexander Mishkin. Um, that number of steps steps all taken outside of of Russia shows as as Michael's saying with the present ways you can get into things the the use of the internet uh, etc uh, the whole idea of of defense intelligence and perhaps a lot of other intelligence including commercial intelligence has completely changed in the past five years Michael Clark began with a driving license they, they decided to start with his license they knew a little bit about that so they took some guesses, Bellingcat, as to what he might have used on a driving license using his parents' names and his own date of birth mm-hmm. because they'd seen that pattern before, just carelessness. And so they went down that route. That route. And once they got in to the system and found something, they were able to find a great deal more. So, Christopher, um, we asked at the top of the programme, are these bungling spies or the creme de la creme? Uh, how do, how do you see this? Is is the the frequency in which people are being identified and uh, pointed out just due to the very nature of the high readiness and the operations of these people, or, or is there something more to this? I think there's mu- I think there's much more to it. I mean, one of them is the, is the reason they would be doing it like this now, and in fact, it's not just like this now because they're doing it in other places. We're concentrated because we you know we got into the story at Salisbury, for example. And in fact, the Salisbury recce had been going on for probably three or four years before. It, it, it turned out the way it did, and I think that that is the important thing, and it's, it's a status, uh, which of, of of the so-called GRU, but really the GU, which changed in 2010, and of what they could do and to whom they reported, and also of clearing up a lot of things that the previous uh, organisation in 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 the uh, military intelligence had not done, that mm. they've gone off on their own cool way. If we could just briefly, Professor Michael Clark mentioned something else uh, that's been in the news this week. Russia building a bridge in the Azov Sea, which effectively stops the movement of Ukraine's ships. What's going on here? It's an industrial blockade, isn't it? Yes. Well, this has been building up for some time. The, the, when the, uh, Crimea was annexed into Russia, the fact is that Crimea got uh, 90% of its food and 100% of its energy through Ukraine, through Ukrainian links, because that's the land part, the land border. It's very close to Russia, but it's separated by the Kir Strait, and that was only served by a, a ferry that just went backwards and forwards. So the Russians have been building a bridge across the Kir Strait, which effectively would bottle up the whole Sea of Azov um, from uh, the rest of the Black Sea. And um, that really matters. I mean, the Russians are building a bridge. Um, remember, Crimea is an illegal uh, annexation as far as the rest of the world is concerned, as far as Ukraine is concerned. So. It depends. The, the, there's been a lot of naval tension in the Sea of Azov. There is an agreement that goes back to uh, 2003 between Ukraine and Russia for keeping the Sea of Azov free, completely free for everybody. But since the annexation, the fact is, if you agree with the annexation, then most of the Sea of Azov actually belongs to Russia. But if you don't agree with the annexation, then none of it does. And the building of a bridge effectively seals the little tip of the Sea of Azov which, which links into the Black Sea. So it's a really important issue 
because it, it fundamentally reflects on the fact whether there is going to be toleration for what the Russians did in 2013 in, in annexing Crimea, or whether the, the world and the Ukrainians are prepared to keep pushing back against this. And if we're looking for evidence of a, a shooting uh, contest, uh, and a naval series of naval engagements, and they'd be pretty one-sided, um, but if there were a series of naval engagements, then this is where they will be. We'll be watching that with interest. Stay with us, gentlemen. The army's investigating after far-right activist Tommy Robinson posted a photo of himself on social media surrounded by soldiers. The picture shows the former English Defence League leader surrounded by a group of grinning young men in camouflage uniform. The army said it is aware of the photograph and footage and is investigating the circumstances surrounding it. Well, let's talk to Daniel Jones from the Centre for the Analysis of the Far-Right. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. Uh, an army spoke has said far-right ideology is completely at odds with the values and ethos of the armed forces. How serious do you see this incident? I think we need to obviously always remember that the, the far-right represent a, a very small uh, marginal group in society, but we shouldn't underestimate the seriousness um, that their kind of ideology represents, um, especially when combined with obviously the military and, and well-trained individuals. In this case, I believe it was um, a cadet uh, group that he was talking to. And obviously Tommy Robinson himself is very much on the softer side of the far right. He is not actively encouraging violence. He's talking uh, primarily in kind of value and identity terms about freedom of speech and these kinds of issues. Mm. However, at his, at his rallies, for example, the Free Tommy movement, you do see groups, uh, for example, the uh, Generation Identity, um, uh, Belgian Nazis, these kind of groups who are then more violent, more concerning if they're kind of being introduced into the military. And what exactly does the far right want to get from the military? I think a large part of it is is legitimacy. The military is a, is a very respected part of British identity, of, of British culture. Uh, and they want to use that legitimacy to kind of argue that they're the real defence um, of British culture, of British values, and that, for example, the, the current leadership politically or otherwise is out of touch in some way. And there's obviously the, the practical steps as well um, in that being getting into the military for the more extreme elements of the far right gives them access to well-trained individuals, potentially to munitions or explosives, and can actually lead to a great deal of harm in society. So from your experience, what do they tend to do? Do they try to put people up that will then join the armed forces or do they try to influence people once they're in? Um, it's been a, a mixture of the two. Um, so historically they've, for example, had members who've joined the Territorial Army. And if you go back to the, the 1950s, the 40s and 50s, the Union movement was trying to recruit, I believe, around the Parachute Regiment um, in the 70s, Column 88 was training with the Territorial Army, according to some press reports, but also at the same time, they were trying to infiltrate the cadet force, and they they actually had one of the training uh, officers um, as, one, as one of their people they'd sent in. But at the same time, it seems that they're also, when they're recruiting people, looking for those in the army who are in a position to espouse their beliefs to others, to become these barrack room recruiters. Um, and we've seen allegations of that type around the national action trials uh, reported that, you know, some of the more senior NCOs perhaps were involved in 
in recruitment for the group. Mm. The, the armed forces have robust measures, they say, in place to ensure those exhibiting extremist views are neither tolerated nor permitted to serve. Nor permitted to serve. What can what can the army do to stop people with the who might be used by extreme right individuals from getting in? How can they spot them? I think a large part of it um, is awareness with their recruiters, awareness with um, their officer corps, and that might be something as dull as as making their their officers attend kind of this, this kind of awareness training. So knowing the language of the far right, which is very complicated often based in conspiracy theories and these kinds of terms that may just seem like nonsense or insanity to the outside uh, kind of viewer, but actually have an internal consistency and they're part of this narrative of cumulative radicalization. And there is a lot that the military does do already, but unfortunately, as we've seen in Germany, sometimes this isn't taken uh, seriously. They were warned that one of their members um, had been speaking in far-right terms, uh, they ignored it, and he was arrested in 2017 trying to um, obtain a pistol which they believed was to be used in a kind of false flag Syrian refugee attack. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this. Uh, Christopher, if someone does have extreme views in the armed forces but doesn't express them, is that a problem? Can they still do a decent job as a soldier? Uh, yes, they can, and, and people do have uh, views of all sorts of things, and they are expressed. I mean, um, you know, let's not pretend that some organization can actually sort of uh, change the shape and the and maybe even the 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 dictum of of a regiment or a battalion uh, i think that's important to remember it's always been the same and people have looked and some of the extremists have looked let's say to the parachute regiment where because of their toughness because of their um, their protocols it's assumed that they must all be you know on the far right and they just want to get at anybody not true and so, and don't forget, it's not just the army. The other, the other two services um, have political views, individuals. Um, that doesn't turn the the, the the armed services on its head. Professor Michael Clark, in this particular incident that we talked about, Tommy Robinson, how serious do you see it? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, we shouldn't take this uh, too seriously. I mean, the, the, you know, these are young cadets. <clears throat> and if they'd found Ollie Murs or Harry Kane there at the motorway service... Do you think they, they knew all... who he was? selfie. Well, apparently somebody must have told him. I'm not sure how they discovered who he was or whether he told them who he was. <laughs> um, but I, but I, in a way, that you know, the event itself isn't so important. I mean, <clears throat> the question is the NCOs or the officers who were with them ought to have realised, if it had been Harry Kane or Ollie Murs, then fine, let it all happen. It's all good fun. But they should, ought to have had the nows to realise that this man, Tommy Robinson, carries a, a big political weight in what he says and does. And he, he uses, as he has done, he uses anything like this disadvantage and, and uh, you know manipulates the photograph so they should have had the common sense to see that and this is a sort of a failure of officership really to allow a what would be normally a harmless little incident to become something politically charged and it does raise as christopher says it raises awkward issues for the forces i don't think they're particularly important issues in operational terms but they are in terms of public perception of how the forces line up politically all right we'll leave it there for the moment daniel jones from the center for the analysis of the far right thank you still to come what's going wrong with recruitment to the u.s army and the new documentary bringing color and sounds to film footage of the first world war 
Four former Northern Ireland secretaries have written to the government calling on it to prioritise support for victims of the Troubles, overspending £150 million on new investigations. Lord Hayne is among nine peers to have responded to a consultation on how to deal with the legacy of the conflict. Here he is speaking yesterday. The DUP is saying it's wrong to pursue members of the armed forces, as, by the way, many retired soldiers are now being chased and investigated, but paramilitaries don't seem to be. The DUP is saying exempt them. Sinn Féin is saying only concentrate on them, don't focus on paramilitaries. Actually, the priority should be what has not been done, which is to support victims. Professor Michael Clark, Lord Hayne goes even further than that. He wants to give the money that would have been spent on investigations to the victims' families. What do you think of that idea? I think that would be quite a good, a good idea, to be honest, because there is a, there's no appetite in Parliament or in the country to carry on with, as it were, witch-hunting against the armed services um, for things that happened a very long time ago, and for all the reasons that we mentioned. Um, and that there is, a, 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 in a sense, a fund of money being, being allocated to this. And he's absolutely right that the people who, who come last in the priority order are the victims. And if this whole process is about reconciliation and moving on, then the best way to develop reconciliation is actually to make sure that victims are, are fully recognised and that there is some form of compensation. So I fully support what is being said here, because I think it's the best way to take a step forward. And if you look at other conflicts around the world, say, it, it, I mean, Lord Hayne himself was intrinsic to the apartheid conflicts in South Africa. The way to get reconciliation to move forward, or in Bosnia, or in Liberia, or in Sierra Leone, is that you have to actually you know, take a step away from the restorative justice uh, element towards restorative rebuilding. And I think that's what he's, he's talking about here. Christopher Lee, can you see any case for actually going through with these historic investigations? I can see a case for doing it if you're, if you're part of the of the victims here, you know, families, etc., and they, they hold a long grief. I'll tell you one thing that is worth looking at, though. If you see where there have been investigations before, and this is not new, uh, you will find it's probably no more than a handful of convictions as a consequence of the investigations and there are those who would say listen you are not going to resolve some of the deeper thoughts of, uh, of those people just by doing what you're doing now you're much better even if you just don't do anything at all it's time passed now the u.s army has missed its recruitment target for the first time in more than a decade its chief of staff says the shortfall of 6,500 soldiers is a warning light sit rep producer Gisela waldron has spoken to malcolm brown from feature story news in washington well, there's a few things to play. First, they're actually trying to increase the size of the military, so the hurdle they're trying to climb is already a little higher than it's been in recent years. But there's a number of factors at play. The big headwind, uh, it seems, is the economy, which is a good news, bad news scenario. Uh, good news, the economy's doing really well. Bad news, that makes it hard for the military to recruit. So with unemployment at 3.7% just last month, uh, that uh, represents a huge draw from the private sector uh, on the kinds of young people that the military might also want to get their hands on. A few other factors at play as well. Motivation, we're starting to see a, 
uh, generation of young people uh, entering the military military now who were born after the events of 9-11, which was a huge motivating factor for, for people to join the military. Um, so there's a number of things going on. There's some societal shifts taking place. Fewer and fewer young people uh, have a relative who served in the military, which is a, a big uh, guide as to whether or not people will uh, go on to join. And another huge um, uh, factor is uh, the number of people actually eligible to join. Uh, there's a staggering number. 71% of 17 to 24-year-olds are not eligible to join uh, for a number of reasons, which we could go into. But it means that the, the potential recruiting pool is much smaller. And also the number of people inclined to join is uh, under strain. So what's the army doing about it? Is it changing the criteria for recruits? For example, people who've had drug convictions or poor fitness? That's right. I mean, those you've touched on some of the, the, the barriers there. That 71% is partly a result of uh, a lower education on the part of uh, some of those, so they don't meet the edu educational requirements. Uh, there are people with criminal records, especially drug convictions, and obesity is another huge factor, just physical fitness and inability to meet the physical standards of the military. And there are indications that they are bending a little on some of those, although, of course, the military puts in slightly different terms. But yes, they are being forced to look at that, but also adopting some more proactive measures like um, greater use of social media in recruitment and, and so on. Can you remind us where overseas the US Army is deployed at the moment and is that likely to be affected by this at all? Could we see a scaling down? Well, certainly Donald Trump isn't a huge fan, uh, based on his public pronouncements, of these overseas deployments which have now dragged on so long that there was a story earlier this year of a, of a young man who followed in his father's footsteps to Afghanistan, serving in exactly the same unit uh, in Afghanistan. So this war has dragged on you know, beyond one generation, essentially. Uh, so yeah, the U.S. is deployed, I mean, in dozens of countries around the world, but in, in combat zones, particularly Afghanistan, is a big one. And you've got people who have served multiple tours, up to four tours, you sometimes hear people saying in Afghanistan. So that kind of grinding, apparently endless deployment is presumably also not a, a major incentive for people to join the military. And this hasn't really affected the other services. Their figures are fine, aren't they? Less so. The US Army, which has much larger recruiting goals because it's a much larger institution, uh, does seem to be bearing the brunt of this recruiting problem. The, the Marines, the Navy and the Air Force uh, have much less of a problem in this regard. That was Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Uh, Christopher Lee, this week the British Army's recruitment process was called into questions by MPs on the Defence Select Committee. Capita managing to bring in fewer than one in ten of the recruits needed by the Army in the first quarter of the year. What would it take to turn things around? A different type of uh, way of doing things for the Army. I mean, you, can, you, you talk to soldiers and say, go back to the idea, for example, of regimental recruiting. Get another organisation uh, rather than the one you've got and what they're trying to do and how they're doing it, how they approach people, who are they approaching, or you've got to accept that you might have to change the shape, uh, part of the shape of the army, uh, which was designed by the present chief of the uh, of the de defence staff, because simply all how three change? services, all well, all three services are not getting enough people to do the jobs. You know, to man up the the organizations and the, uh, that they've got and so you may say listen let's review how what sort of war uh, what sort of rather defense system that the british government can can hope to have which might be what 
Well, you 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 look at a role. Uh, I mean, for example, last week we had the we had one of the armed forces ministers saying that Britain's role in the Middle East uh, is 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 for all time. Now we're going to be there for all time. Well, have a look. And what would you book there for all time? Are you having to think about? Uh, for example, you have the same number of ships. Do you have the same uh, active, uh, say, infantry uh, battalions that could be sent there at any time? Think how mm. you're doing it, which is exactly what's happening in America. If you take, you look Columbus, Ohio, Eureka, California. Uh, I can't remember what the one is mm. in in thingy in uh, all saying we've got an 18% reduction reduction okay. in 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 recruiting at the same time we've got an 18% increase in the number of jobs that are going in in the civilian uh, side now Oscar-winning director Peter Jackson has transformed original footage from the First World War into colour, bringing the soldiers' stories to life for a documentary to mark the centenary of the Great War. The Lord of the Rings director worked with the Imperial War Museum to create the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old. Our reporter Lisa Hartle went to meet him. Congratulations, first of all, on the documentary. It was unlike anything I've ever seen before. Um, So the Imperial War Museum approached you three years ago to see what you could do with the footage from the First World War. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have any idea at that point you'd be able to achieve what you have? No. No, no, their their brief to me was really they was, I could do anything I wanted um, so long as it sort of, they'd use their footage in, you know, some sort of a fresh way. That that was their only brief, and I didn't have a clue. I I, I, I mean, in fact, I I sat there thinking, what the hell can I do? Because I've seen all the World War I documentaries with the footage, and it's always, you know, in there, and it's... And I just, anyway, I said, well, let me think about it. I went back to New Zealand, and I... The first thing that came into my mind was, um, I wonder how well you can restore this footage with the computer technology we've got. And back in New Zealand, we've got a huge visual effects company with thousands and thousands of computers and, um, and, and, and you know, huge computer firepower that we use for visual effects. And I thought, well, I don't think anyone's ever really seriously tried to grab some of this footage and restore it to its, to, to its ultimate degree. And what's possible, I didn't know. And so I asked them to send me four minutes of, of film, just four minutes that they could scan. They scanned it and sent it to me just as a test. And I, I was blown away once we'd finished doing our work on it. We had to figure out what to do. But once we were finished that four, with that four minutes, I just couldn't believe how good it looked. I mean, it, was, it, it blew me away. Well, I, I read that you went through, the team of you went through 600 hours of audio. And about 100 hours of footage, yeah. And did that, yeah. after going through all of that, did that change your perspective on the First World War at all? Yes, it did. Well, the, it's a one, it actually, I like this movie in the sense that it, it, it's a very honest film and that it made itself in a way. So, you know, looking at the, uh, the restored um, footage, the thing that jumps out at you is the, is the, are the people, you know, the humanity, because they, they suddenly become real, real human beings. They don't become Charlie Chaplin. They're not Charlie Chaplin, spit up jerky figures anymore. They're, they're real people with all the nuances and subtleties of human beings. So therefore, it, it's told me that this should be a human story, not a war story, you know, not, you know in terms of strategies and tactics. And then it's... Um, then I thought, well, okay, well, that, in terms of the audio part of it, the only voices we should hear should be the voices of the veterans that fought the war. It's, so it's sort of, sort of one thing led to the other. It sort of, it sort of made itself in a way. It sort of told me what, it, you know, you know, I was simply f- following, following the lead that all these, that the film and the sound was, uh, was taking me on. And um, so then I, I started to get all the art, all the audio, and I said to the BBC and um, the, the Imperial War Museum, I said, don't send me any audio from when the men are very old. I don't want 80, 90 year old men. Just send me audio that you might have done in the 1960s, 1970s, when you know some of the guys. If, they were, if you were interviewed in the 1960s, you're not much, you're not much older than I am. You're quite young, um, and so you know they're, they're not they're not ancient old guys, and they're quite vibrant, and their memories are not you know they're pretty sharp. 
And um, so they, I, I got 600 hours of this audio, which was unbelievable, um, incredible stuff. And the thing that, I guess, the thing that stood out from the audio is the lack of you know, self-pity that these guys had. You know, we, we've imposed a lot of pity on them. We, we've imposed our own view of the First World War that we sent these young guys to the, to the meat grinder, you know, the slaughter of the Western Front. And you know, that on one level is completely true. There's not, there's no, that's not an, an accurate description. But, but the soldiers themselves d didn't view it like that. You know? I, mean, I mean, one of them, the best, the best quote that the one guy says, and it's not just a single guy, it's sort of, it, it is very representative of all of them. And I think it's probably summed up the First World War in my mind now. But anyway, as he says, well, it was like a, it was like a, it was like an extended boy boy scout camp, with the spice of with a spice of danger thrown in, just 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 to, just to liven things up a bit, you know, a boy scout camp with a spice of danger thrown in, and that's sort of what, how they felt felt about it. That was the film director Peter Jackson talking to Lisa Hartle. Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, that's quite a way to describe it, isn't it, Michael? Yes, and it, it does get to the human heart of, of this, really, is that, that um, you know, we, we've been brought up on the sort of, oh, what lovely war version, the Blackadder version of the First World War, and we talked about this on, the, on this program a few times. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't as, as much of a grim um, meat grinder as, as all that. It was, it was certainly a vicious, vicious war. But most of the troops were in the front line for two weeks at a time, and then they were back, you know, enjoying the Boy Scout camp, as it were. So it isn't that anybody enjoyed it, but they did actually survive in a way that young men and young women are able to survive in very difficult conditions. Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time today. There we will have to leave it, and They Shall Not Grow Old is in cinemas next week. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP in all the usual podcast places. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Defence Minister.